0: This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, August 12th, 2017. Today we are going to be talking about ET, the extraterrestrial a brand new movie that just recently hit the theaters near my house. We're we're also going to be talking with blogger Vlad James about his uh, new piece on the Castalia House fantasy and science fiction blog. But before we get to those, John, how was your week?
1: It's a good week. I've been good. I've been playing a lot of games, as you might have guessed. Uh, I wanted to tell you guys about a new site that I found, actually, this week. I'm sure it's an old site, but uh, and there's a million ways to play games online. But uh, I found a great site that has, for free, lots of popular European-style board games that uh, you can just play in your browser. Um, fast, easy, and free. It's called uh, Board Game Arena, and, uh, and we'll get you guys the link to that in the notes but uh what can i say it's been really good waiting you know waiting for something you got 30 minutes play a quick game of puerto rico or uh stone age tokaido race for the galaxy is a really popular one on there that's a great game for two players um lots of lots of classic games that uh you don't have to go to the game store uh or you know heaven forbid you know interact with other people in face-to-face situations um I've been I've been u- using that a lot in my spare time. So that's that's been my week, really. How about you, Ryan?
2: Well, as always, I've been putting uh, my nose to the grindstone in terms of writing and editing. Had a bunch of great editing projects lying in my lap lately. So I'm you know, doing what I can to improve the general state of science fiction and fantasy by making other authors' works better. And, of course, I'm working on my own book, too. Plus, um, I've also been campaigning pretty heavily for the Dragon Awards, you know, virtuously trolling some folks who deserve it, having having good times.
0: And um, I'm going to be on the Superverse of SF podcast after this show. Um, We'll be discussing the Dragon Awards and the Hugos and some other stuff, too. Uh, I'll be honest, though. The Hugos were this week... And I did not even watch them. I didn't watch them. I didn't pay attention. I haven't really, other than the couple of people who tweeted, I have no idea who won. I, it, they are now irrelevant. They're over. They're past.
2: Yeah, did you hear that both um, attending and supporting memberships were down by 50% and so we're nominating in final ballots? Yep. <laughs> <Now> I'm,
0: <laughs> I'm just happy about that. And, and they're trying to spin it. They're trying to say, oh, well, this is the second biggest year for blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to, uh, once the chorfs figure out that their opponents have left, many of them, not all of them, but many of them will leave. And so next year's are going to be um, down as well. But still, it's, it's a big blow to Worldcon to have 50% of your budget just gone unexpectedly. Just bam, vanish, like that. That's a big problem.
2: Yeah, that was honestly what what I predicted would be one of the biggest impacts of the, the various puppy campaigns from the last few years was it artificially inflated the attendance, you know, and and thus the revenues from memberships. And it the way that WorldCon was behaving made it seem like they thought this gravy train would never end, which means they almost certainly malinvested that money. And are not prepared for the drastic drop off in revenues.
0: Couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of folks, I tell you what. Couldn't happen to to a more deserving bunch of folks. Yep. Um, All right.
3: Oh, I, I did want to note that it was just very funny just to look at the list of various candidates, the winners, and how much, how many votes they received. Someone posted a PDF document of that, and just looking through you. You learn everything you need to know about the award and the state it's in.
2: Yeah, Dr. Chuck Tingle narrowly missed being named the best fan writer. He was a close second.
1: Um. Chuck Tingle's the space raptor guy, right?
2: Oh, and so much more. He's a, he's a taekwondo master, and he's a doctor of um, therapeutic massage, and...
0: He, he travels
3: across parallel dimensions.
2: Spaghetti aficionado. Yeah,
3: is a modern renaissance man.
2: He's all things to all men. So hopefully next year.
0: Um. So I want to talk about ET for just a little bit before we get to um, Vlad's post, because like I said, the, the dollar theater near my house, which is, as was pointed out in the in the, uh, our discussion, brief discussion before we went on the f- show, um, it's not technically a $1 theater, it's technically a $3 theater, at least most of the time. So we just call it a $1 theater, you know, just call it a dollar theater, because that's easier. That's what we call those things around here. It's a second run theater. And apparently this specific second run hit about 40 years, our 30 years, excuse me, after the original movie hit the theaters. That's right. We're talking about E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which is a movie by Steven Spielberg. Uh, came out in 1982, so 35 years ago. This movie came out, and um, it was infamously edited for its Blu-ray release, for its high-def release, uh, as mocked on South Park, where they took any guns which appeared in the film and digitally edited them out and replaced them with walkie-talkies. So I was curious as I went into the theater as to which version of E.T. I would be getting. Would I be getting the real E.T. or would I be getting the edited for morons version? Fortunately, I got the original E.T., and so I felt much, much better about going and watching the movie. It is deeply silly and deeply stupid to edit out the guns out of the movie. It did nothing, nothing, accomplished nothing uh, other than, you know, bastardizing the work. It didn't even have some of the flimsy, li- uh, lousy justifications that George Lucas had for butchering the original trilogy. It was just done for no reason, and Steven Spielberg has later gone back and apologized for it, but yet at the same time uh, has not re-released the original ET for streaming or for uh, purchasing via download or for purchasing on Blu-ray. Or It's possible, I suppose, if they do a 4K quote-unquote restoration like has become popular in the past year, that they may update those graphics to match what was originally in the movie? I have no idea. I certainly hope they do. So here's some random thoughts on E.T. If you haven't seen E.T., I you're gonna be, I'm gonna be talking about the movie and there's gonna be some spoilers. So 35 years, okay, 35 years is well beyond the statute of limitations for spoiling the movie. So If you haven't seen it yet, then I apologize, but it's your own gall dang fault. Steven Spielberg, like many movie makers, is hit or miss. He makes a lot of great movies and makes a couple of bad ones. And so E.T., however, is one of his great movies. It was, at the time, uh, seemed to be a classic, an instant classic, And 35 years later, other than the brouhaha about the editing of the movie, it has proven to be a classic. And as you watch the film, you realize exactly why. He is an exceedingly visual director and he composes every shot to have within it what he needs and what he wants to make that shot. Obviously within limitations of actor performances and so on and so forth. But you can tell through the movie that he's got a script he's working from, and he's precisely moving through the story. And every shot, is he is highly disciplined about how he goes about composing the shot and shooting the shot. I'm just going to give you one example. The movie is about a spaceship that lands on Earth, and a spaceman on the ship gets stranded on Earth. Accidentally, the ship leaves and leaves him behind. His character is known as E.T., which stands for extraterrestrial, hence the name of the movie. Now, he is being chased by government agents who are searching for this ship. They've detected this ship, and they're searching for it. Every single time, except for maybe once, that the government agents are on screen, Their faces are either cut off, so you're seeing them from the neck down, or they're in deep shadow so you can't see their features again and again and again throughout the entire movie up until one crucial scene where you have one government agent who needs to be humanized. And only then do you see one of their faces, and even in that scene when he first appears, his face is half obscured by a reflection of Elliot, who's the boy, who takes this E.T. into his house and tries to keep him hidden. His face is halfway obscured by a reflection on a plastic mask of Elliot lying on the table. Now, this does several things, but the most obvious is it dehumanizes the government agents. It makes it obvious that they're the bad guys, and by hiding their face or concealing their features, you make them less human, in fact you make them less human than the extraterrestrial, because the point of the story is the emotional bond between this alien, between E.T. and Elliot, and in order to feel that, in order to care about that emotional bond, you have to humanize this patently inhuman alien. This is not a Starman style alien, this is not a Star Trek style alien, this is not a human being with some weird stuff on his forehead. He is, has tiny little legs, stumpy legs, three toes, a big barrel chest, long spindly arms with the wrong number of fingers, a huge long neck that telescopes up to his, you know, strange looking face. So in order to make him seem more human, make him seem more lovable, make him seem cute, make it seem reasonable that Elliot would empathize with this alien to the point of being willing to risk his life, You dehumanize their opponents, and it also makes, every second that they're on screen, they're ominous. They're dark. They're foreboding. They are inhuman. They are the enemy, and you understand that purely through visual language. You don't have to be told that. Nobody discusses it. Nobody says, well, you know, these government agents are sneaking around, and they're up to no good, and I just don't trust the dang one of them. You don't have to say that because they're on screen and they look like they're figures of authority, figures of menace. They look like they're dangerous. One other thing I forgot, by the way, is actually the very first time you see this guy's face before he has the reflection across his mask, it's lit from below. Now, when you light a human face from below, it subtracts... A large part of the humanity, it looks strange, it looks weird. And you can parody this at campfires, as many people do, when they hold the flashlight up under their face, but it really does, on a visceral level, it takes a human face and it rearranges it so it doesn't look human. So the very first time you see a government agent's face, it is lit from below, so that even though you're seeing human features, and you can understand the expressions on its face, uh, on his face and interpret them, it's still lit in such a way to subtract some of his humanity to make him seem menacing, to make you, him seem um, imposing. And that's, really,
2: that, that's really interesting. In light of a couple other choices that Spielberg made, because it's not just the government agents, but you don't see an adult face, with the exception of Elliot's mother, until the last 30 minutes of the movie. And and you're right, even then they're obscured. But then also, Spielberg shot the movie from the eye level of a child, so you would identify with the children more. So it's not just the government agents who are visually portrayed as the enemy, it's almost every adult in the movie.
0: Kind of like the Charlie Brown cartoons, where all the adults are huge and towering, and all the children are normal-sized. There you go. Um, So Steven Spielberg is very, very disciplined. He set all that visual imagery up. He did it deliberately, carried it out with rigid discipline throughout the entire movie. And it's what makes um, it's what makes the movie work on an emotional level, is thinking through the visual language and the emotions that that communicates to the audience. Uh, just some other quick notes before we take off. The ship obviously way predates CGI, it predates CGI by uh, 10 years until Jurassic Park would come along. And it is a miniature, obviously a miniature, uh, and it has lights and it's a physical model. Uh, but and yet it feels more concrete than the overly CGI uh, garbage we get today. It feels more concrete because it's not. Uh, it, it's not fake, it's simple. You have In CGI, what people tend to do nowadays is just throw tons of crap on the screen, which just obscures it. But the fact is, movies work best when there's a limited number of visual elements on the screen that you can pay attention to subconsciously or consciously. And one of them, or two of them at most, really, are the center focus of a shot. Everything else is kind of there in the background. The more things you have in the background, the more a brain has to process them to decide whether they're ominous, to decide whether they're friendly, to decide whether they're sexy, to decide whether they're whatever. And so the more elements you throw into a shot, the less your audience will understand each individual elements until you reach a certain point of oversaturation and the audience just doesn't know what's going on. On screen, unless they slow the movie down or see it multiple times, and typically with movies, you cannot assume that an audience is going to view it multiple times. So it has to be right right now. It has to be right in a very limited time frame, so the audience can immediately grasp it. And being forced to do practical effects that is physical models and physical you know structures that's what they call those practical effects in Hollywood. Uh, you have to simplify it because you just don't have enough space in where you're shooting at. Uh, and it's just way too expensive to put too much crap in it. So it forced a simplicity, it forced a um, an elegance that a lot of later movies lack. And yes, it looks fake, because you know it's fake, but yet it looks more real than the supposedly realistic computer graphics. Uh, let's see. The kids are playing D&D. Uh, that's one of the great little fun scenes. They're talking about stuff they've got a. Uh, miniatures set up on the table. They're playing D and D, and Elliot begs them to be able um, to uh, play the game. Got the movie's got a lot of fun little moments of levity. Like Elliot says in a very deadly serious voice, "Nobody go out there!" And immediately, everybody at the table, all the kids, grab knives and run out to see what's going on. Um, it is uh, hilarious. So. Trying to flip through my notes here.
3: Um, uh, actually, a quick question for you: sure. Have you seen uh, Starman? And if so, what did you think of it?
0: I saw Starman a long time ago, and I don't even remember if I saw the whole thing.
3: Uh, uh, but it is in
0: my DVD queue to watch.
3: Yeah, it's, I, I wonder actually if that was just meant to be a ripoff or simply a capitalization off a success of ET. Uh, it was also done by a great director, John Carpenter, uh, right after he did The Thing in Escape from New York. Uh, has, I, I think it was actually decently successful at the time as well.
0: It has Jeff Bridges in it. And Jeff Bridges is, uh, and always has been, a really great actor. Um,
2: yeah. Didn't he win so, Best Actor for that?
3: I, uh, not I, that? I don't think for Starman. Uh, honestly, I think Jeff Bridges has been in a lot of bad or mediocre films. And personally, I consider Starman pretty mediocre, but he was interesting. New... <laughs> that... mm-hmm.
0: Jeff Bridges was nominated for Best Actor, did not win.
3: Oh, for um, Starman, okay. really?
0: Yeah. Um, wow. And let's see. Nominated for a couple of Golden Globes, uh, one Best Actor for the Academy of Science, Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I doubt that that is... It's called the Saturn Award. I've never heard of it. Honestly, I've never heard of it before this very instant. But uh, So, yeah, he, he was Oscar nominated for his role in Starman. Um, so, all right. Uh, so, that E.T. is a great movie. It's a fun movie. It is a classic movie. It is a movie that does exactly what it sets out to do, which is present a children's movie about this young boy meeting an alien and, uh, you know, them forming a friendship and what happens between the two. So, I would highly recommend... Um, that you go see it. By the way, since we're talking about Oscars, E.T. won Oscars for Best Sound Design, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects, and Best Music. Uh, Original score by, of course, John Williams, who does everything that is awesome in music pretty much. Uh, Nominated for Best Picture, nominated for Best Director, nominated for Best Screenplay, nominated for Best Cinematography, nominated for Best Editing. Didn't win any of those, but definitely it deserved, at the very least, the nominations. Uh, and I'm kind of curious as to what it went up against for Best Picture that year, but not curious enough to actually search it out on the internet. So, uh, anybody else have any questions about E.T. before we change directions abruptly?
2: I've got a few fun facts if you okay. got a little trivia.
0: Knock yourself out.
2: Okay, well, E.T.'s face was based on Carl Sandberg, Albert Einstein, and a pug dog. The gag where the mother looks in the closet and sees the alien surrounded by toys was dreamed up by Robert Zemeckis.
3: Interesting.
2: Harrison Ford initially had a cameo as the principal of Elliot's school, but it was cut. (laughs) And then uh, you mentioned Jurassic Park earlier. E.T. was the highest grossing film in history until it was beaten by Jurassic Park. So Spielberg had two Mm. in a row.
3: Well, he, he is a legendary director. Well, that's not director. counting inflation, though.
2: Yeah. What are you saying, Daddy War Pig?
0: Uh, Steven Spielberg is a legendary director. I mean, he just is um, absolutely phenomenal at, at what he does. So uh, it's not surprising. So yeah. now, that, uh, now we've talked about E.T., um, I want to introduce our guest. Our guest today, uh, our special guest today is Vlad James, who blogs uh, over on the Castalia House Science Fiction and Fantasy blog uh, where I also blog. Uh, and he has a new story up called The Death of Science F- The death of the science fiction short story, a link to which is in the description underneath this video. And so I'm going to let him say hi to you and introduce himself and uh, tell us about his new blog post.
3: My name is uh, Vlad, and I was actually reading some science fiction short stories when it struck me that I had never really been disappointed by one. Now, sure, some were better than others, some were just okay. Uh, It's rare to come across one that was truly great, but even when they didn't succeed, even when they didn't quite hit the mark, they were still pretty good. So thinking about that even further, I realized what an excellent, even an ideal format the short story is for science fiction. And with that, I thought about how all the major writers uh, of yesteryear, all the great masters, they used to release dozens and dozens of short stories throughout their career, and these would appear in magazines, these would appear in collections, which were very popular, many of them, and how now we don't have that. Um, And I just looked at why it is that it's such a good format specifically for science fiction, and what has changed for authors and readers as a result of the short story no longer being as prevalent or as popular within science fiction
2: what are some of the reasons you found
3: oh reasons well as i mentioned early on it's it's a decline, which is kind of obvious in the general sense, but it's more interesting to look at the effects from it, yeah? Because it's obvious that, okay, people, they don't really read the magazines anymore, and that's in general true of all magazines, not just science fiction ones. But it's had a number of... Uh, influences, I think on the readers and it's had a number of influences on authors, which uh, I'm sure on the latter one, you, you know, far more than me, Brian, but it seems to me that it's very bad for, for writers too, because they used to be able to cut their teeth on writing these short stories. And as I discuss in the piece, the reason that there's such great consistency with short stories is that all you need is a good idea. Now for some people that's the most difficult thing in the world they live their entire life without a single good idea but presumably if you're a good science fiction writer or a great one you can come up with many interesting ideas and that's really all you need. You don't need outstanding pacing. You don't need interesting characters. You don't need a plot. You just need a good idea. And so in that sense, if you do have some talent, it's a really good way to start before you actually write a complete novel. And because there isn't really... As much of a market or an outlet or an audience for it, uh, a lot of these writers, they just have to write a novel. And that's far more challenging. And there's probably mistakes they make in the novel that they could have avoided if they had written a string of short stories to begin with.
0: And it's uh, kind of tangential, but. The American market has also, since they had to increase prices, been pushing for longer and longer novels. So instead of 50 or 60,000 words, they want 150 or 300,000 mm-hmm. words. And the problem with that is in order to take a really exciting story and get it to that length, you have to pad it out, which makes it long and boring. And so yeah. if you want exciting adventure stories, short stories are great because you don't have to invest heavily in the world. You can get in, enjoy it, and get out. And Short novels are better than long novels because they can move much more quickly, you don't have to have a lot of padding. Some authors who are really tremendously successful build their novels based on great ideas but they're just, especially epic fantasy, is just so padded. It is so flabby, it is so uh, overstuffed with crap that you just don't need that I'm just waiting for them to get on with the story. Something should be happening. Well, the
2: other phenomenon at work there is authors to say, "Okay, I know that my editor is going to ask me to cut like at least ten percent of this, so I will write like an additional ten percent of fluff." And you know, when when that order comes down, I'll cut the stuff I didn't want anyway. But uh, quite often, you know, you get to a certain level they don't really edit you anymore. So I think that habit sticks around and it's to everyone's detriment.
0: The nice thing about short stories is that they allow you to try out a lot of new stuff. And if something works, you can revisit it in a later story. If an audience loves a character, you can revisit them in a later story or um, even ex- uh, you know, add a novel on back of the short story. A lot of novels start out as short stories and the short story ends up being the first or second chapter of the novel. Um, and so, yeah, but, um, so short yeah, stories well, are, are great for experimenting.
3: Yeah, that's actually a, a point I brought up in the article, too. For the reader, it's a great way to come across new writers. Uh, that it used to be that you discover a new writer just coming across a short story of theirs, which was either free or part of a magazine with many other short stories. Now you have to take a chance by buying and reading an entire book of theirs and even on top of a greater investment of resources you're making there in terms of time and money, there's also a chance that it won't actually be a fair look at that writer because even great science fiction writers have written mediocre, Disappointing and even bad novels Uh, the success rate when it comes to these old school masters with novels is much less much less success rate than it is with their short stories so not only do you have to take more risk as a reader but it could actually be a good writer they just happen to write an unfortunate book. So yeah, it used to be a really great way to discover new writers with a far less investment by the reader, which doesn't really exist anymore, unfortunately.
2: I'm curious, what have you checked out any of the newer short story venues like Kirsova, Russell newquist Lioness, or Story Hack?
3: I did mention Sersova at the end of the article that uh to say that it's not all doom and gloom, right? Uh, so yeah, I am aware of it. There are uh, some outlets who are trying their best to resurrect this and certainly uh, that's excellent. But I, obviously in a, in a macro sense, one can see a big difference in popularity and exposure. But yeah, I applaud anyone who who is trying to resurrect that. Uh, one of the
0: things that it takes a little bit of adjusting to is if all you're used to is reading novels, there's a period of adjustment to get used to short stories because they're quite different. Um, but so, for example, when I started reading Priscilla, the magazine, the first time I've read short stories, uh, specific in many of them, uh, one after another for a long, long time, couple of decades at least. And so One of the things I had to do was just get used to short stories again. And it was kind of, uh, I I didn't, I don't know how to phrase it exactly. It was kind of uh, unfamiliarity. I was very unfamiliar with the short story going into it. And so it didn't sit with me as well as novels because I'd been used to novels. But after I read four or five of them, um, I got into the short story. And I understood how they worked. And I understood the, you know, the limitations of, uh, of space, how that could aid focus on what was most important, how it focused your attention down. And, and I just got used to it. it. It focuses your attention as a writer and as an editor down on what is the most important idea here? What is the most important story beats? What is the most important description? And everything else that isn't significant, that doesn't move the story forward, that doesn't have an impact needs to be cut. That's a great short story is one that is uh, very, very sparse, very, very economical. It's a lot like a poetic form, um, like a sonnet or uh, a haiku or something where you have to uh, focus everything with economy. You have to throw aside everything that doesn't work and you have to be maximally evocative in a minimal space. So you have to choose wording that will evoke the emotions of the scene in the audience in a very, very sparse format. So. After four or five short stories, I got used to them again. And I began deeply appreciating the virtues of the short story, deeply appreciating the virtue of focusing on the story itself and not on all of this crappy padding. Uh, And after that, uh, you know, I just love short stories and I want more short stories. I want to, I've been reading more short stories. I want people to publish more short stories. Specifically, I want them to publish good short stories with strong uh, stories in them, and uh, not a lot of this waffling, boring BS that gets passed off as short stories recently, but which aren't.
3: Yeah, that's actually a phenomenal way of describing it. Uh, That's the way I think of a short story, is that you want to paint the scene with a minimum of brush strokes, and that a truly great master, he only needs a few brush strokes to evoke and convey the image that he wants in your mind. Uh, I should mention too that science fiction as a genre is unique when it comes to the short story. Uh, I used to, I always really liked short stories and uh, certainly among the greatest short story writers ever would be someone like a William Somerset Maugham or F. Scott Fitzgerald. And their short stories are fantastic But when you read their short stories, they're a lot like their novels, just shorter and somewhat more limited in scope. Um, Whereas with science fiction short stories, they're not like novels at all. They can just spend their entire time exploring a single interesting idea and concept. They don't have the... Characters they don't have a plot that short stories in other genres do, so that's that's a very unique trait and also why I think it's such an ideal format for science fiction.
0: I think that any genre which has an adventure focus, like um, you know, you had uh, Robert E. Howard's uh, stories of uh, boxing or. Uh, the the boxing champion who ran around the world beating up stuff. Uh, fantasy mm-hmm. short stories. Any uh, genre pirates that focuses on adventure can do a great short story because short stories work really really well for adventure stories. Um, and, and of course, my favorite short stories are are some of the are some of my favorite short stories are the Conan stories and things like yeah. that, which were just uh, just amazing.
3: Yeah, so. I agree.
0: Um, one of the things I think—I don't know—it's it's one of the reasons why science fiction fantasy is uh, superior to literary fiction. Is we can focus on the story, we can focus on um, the action, focus on characters, and move quickly because uh, we're not trying to focus on how boring and miserable and uh, uh, depressing life is, and so short stories. If you're moving along through a story, you can't sit there and be also at the same time, oh, life is so boring, because things keep happening. I mm-hmm.
2: have uh, Bryce Beatty, the editor of Story Hack, in the chatter points out that uh, the boxing character you're looking for, Daddy War Pig, is Steve Costigan.
0: Yes.
3: Uh, he also has some kind of dog, which has a pretty amusing name as well. <laughs> I um
0: uh, so yeah, I mean I, if you're not used to short stories, anybody listening in the audience, if you're not used to short stories if you uh, you know if you're used to novels, go ahead and pick up a collection of great short stories, not one of those mediocre modern collections go pick up like the best of um the best of Robert E Howard there's a two volume set done oh. I don't remember what company did them, but they're for sale on Amazon, ebook format, or you can buy them in uh, paperback on Dead Tree, as it is said. Uh, and there's a there's a two volume set of them that has a bunch of Conan stories. They have a bunch of his. Um, Solomon Kane stories, of the Steve Costigan stories, some poems of his, basically uh, it's just a, a vast medley of different kinds of short stories and they're very, very good. Or check out, of course, Cursova, uh, Story Hack, S., um, who are modern day, who are reviving the modern day pulp short stories uh, and give them a read and get used to short stories again. And once you get used to them, once you uh, like them, then you can go ahead and 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 really really dig into all of the. I mean, we've had from the 1910 to 1910 to let's say 1980, and it might be earlier than that. It might be 1940, 1950, 1960, wherever you want to cut it off. We've had decades and upon decades of magazines that are being published monthly or weekly with five or six short stories in them, and most of them were great, were good to great, and the very best ones are legendary. And again, you may not be used to them because they're not written in the modern style, but they are absolutely well worth reading. And if you uh, give them a chance um, to get used to, uh, get used to the format, get used to enjoying it to kind of set aside novels for a little bit, get into short stories, you will be well rewarded because they are absolutely incredible. And I am, as I'm speaking, I'm also trying to flip through my Kindle collection on my computer so I can figure out which company. Oh, Ballantine Books did a two book series, two volume series, called Crimson Shadows, the best of Robert E. Howard. Um, And so I would recommend checking those out because it's a great sampler of Robert E. Howard's stories. They also produced the horror stories of Robert E. Howard, and they also uh, made uh, The Savage Tales of Solomon King as a standalone book, and so I found that, uh, that if you want to get into short stories, Robert E. Howard is absolutely a great place to start, or anybody that's listed in uh, the appendix and a literary history of Dungeons & Dragons. The vast majority of them um, did awesome stuff as well.
2: Short stories are important for authors too. Ray Bradbury recommended that aspiring authors should read one short story, one essay, and one poem every night before bed to, like like you said, get get this sense for economy and also how, how to structure prose and then also how to use words Right. Verbal economy, how to use the right word for the job.
3: I'm actually cu- curious, Brian, uh, as a writer yourself, Who are what are some short stories and some short story writers that you really enjoy and took inspiration from?
2: Well, H.P. Lovecraft, definitely. And then yeah. also Lovecraft's um, homeboy, Edgar Allan Poe, The, the Telltale Heart. Um, I agree with Dan Wells. It's the perfect short story. It there are just no flaws in it whatsoever. If you really want to see like still the unchallenged epitome of short story writing, read the telltale heart.
3: Yeah, I think he's and, like the modern short story writer, Edgar Allan Poe.
2: Yeah, and I love Robert E. Howard. So yeah, like I'll just echo Daddy Warpig, pretty much anything in Appendix N.
0: All right, well, we are getting on towards uh, the end of the show because I got to take off after this stream and go and uh, jump into a different stream. So before I do, though, I want to give Vlad a a, a last chance to... By the way, again, I don't know if I said it, the link to his article about short stories is in the description of the blog, so you can go check that out. Um, Is there uh, any last words you want to get in before we take off?
3: Well, just uh, thank you very much, Danny Warpeg. Thank you to Brian. Thank you to John. Uh, it's my first time on a podcast, and it was a very enjoyable experience. Thank you. Um, any uh, any last words, Brian?
2: Yes, just want to remind everyone that the Dragon Awards are right around the corner. Voting closes, I believe, on September 2nd now. They've extended it, but i um, pretty sure that registration to request a free ballot closes two days before that. So there's a link below in the show notes go ahead click that request your free balance. I believe the next batch is gonna be sent out on Monday because they do it twice weekly and I'd be remiss not to mention that my own book The secret Kings Soul Cycle Book Three is nominated for best science fiction novel and it is up against the collapsing Empire by John Scalzi saying <laughs> <laughs> Yaka um, yeah <can> I- <laughs> yeah." So yeah we're getting the comments here. But um, yeah, that maniacal laughter should tell everything you need to know about that. Um, but I'll point out there there's no award in this for me. If Secret Kings wins, I've already publicly pledged to cede the award to my lovely and gracious editor, El Jaji Lamplighter Wright, who makes my books as good as they are. So you can get Secret Kings on sale. Really, my whole Soul Cycle series is on sale for like nine bucks. It's it's less altogether. All three books, and then Scalzi's single book, which uh, Tor is offering for like twelve dollars, so you get a good deal, and you can help save science fiction from the the, the chor fled lit fic inspired civics lectures that just won Hugo's.
0: Um, let me close since we were talking about fiction uh, this week. Uh, one of the recent books that I've just finished that I thought was really really great was called The Law Dog Files. Um, and uh, it's uh, it is not either science fiction or fantasy, but it is hilarious, and it is about a police officer and uh, his uh, his many travails in office, and it's absolutely hilarious. So you should definitely give that a, a check. And I've also started reading American Sniper, which is the autobiography of Chris Kyle, the most uh, the sniper with the most kills ever in the. Uh, in the military so i'm quite enjoying that one and it's also very very good for research on various subjects so um any last words uh john before we take
3: off
1: well thanks for coming on it was really interesting to hear about uh the short stories and and uh i'm looking forward to seeing more from you on the blog
3: oh, thank you all
0: right folks this has been geek gab for saturday august 12th um talking about et and uh, short stories with vlad james By the way, you can get us on youtube.com slash geekgab. That is youtube.com slash geekgab, and we do the show about once a week, usually about this time, Uh, or actually usually about an hour later, but we had to bump it today for various reasons. We are also available on the Google Play Store. We are also available on the iTunes Store, and we are also available on the uh, SoundCloud website. You can subscribe to us through any of those places so you can download our shows automatically to your favorite mobile device or just your home computer and listen to them. And by the way, in the light of recent news about YouTube shutting down whole channels and stuff for presenting non politically correct thought, I wish to reassure the audience that I, your host, am uh, forward looking on that subject. I have saved every single episode of the show, including Geek Gab on the books. Uh, our weekly book-related podcast hosted by Brian and Geek Gap Game Night, uh, hosted our regular podcast on role-playing games hosted by John. I have saved every single episode of those to my hard drive. So, in the case in the case that YouTube decides that this channel has ventured too far afield, I don't know why they would, but in case they have, we will be prepared to move someplace else. And a large portion of our show is already uploaded to SoundCloud, so you can definitely uh, catch us there in case YouTube decides to drop the banhammer on us, Gap, Thanks for tuning in, folks. We are checking out for today, but don't worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.